Chapter 45 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 45. King Olaf Establishes Christianity in Norway, His Laws and Administration. After the peace of Konghelle, King Olaf ruled for many years without being molested by foreign enemies. It was his ambition to make Norway a strong Christian monarchy like other Christian states of Europe, and he labored assiduously to carry through a great program of organization and reform by which the foundations were laid for the future national development of Norway. The problems confronting him were many and difficult. Norway would have to regain its integrity and independence, Christianity had to be re-established, the laws were in need of revision, and the aristocracy had to be reduced to submission and to full obedience to the laws. In the years prior to 1019, while he was yet engaged in the struggle with the king of Sweden, he introduced Christianity in Oplanena. He visited every district and petty kingdom, placed missionaries there to instruct the people, and punished severely all those who refused to accept the Christian faith. The kings of these districts were much displeased, and assembled to form an alliance against him, but a friend informed him of their plot. He surprised them, and took them prisoners while they were still deliberating upon the uprising, and punished them severely. Some he banished, others he maimed or blinded, says the saga, the rule of petty kings in Norway was ended. Oplanena, which hitherto had been nearly independent, was now placed immediately under the crown. After the treaty of peace with Sweden in 1019, Olaf could devote himself to the missionary work with greater energy, and he was ably assisted by the bishops which he had brought from England and Normandy. Of those mentioned, Rudolf, Bernhard, Grimkel, and Sigurd, Grimkel was the most important. He was a man of learning, tact, and ability. The name indicates that he was of Norse descent, but he must have been born in England. He was King Olaf's chief advisor and assistant both in the missionary work and in law-giving. Among the king's most powerful and devoted friends were also Bjorn Stalera, Komas Stabuli, Sigvat Thordsen, the great skald, Thord Folesen, Aslak Fitjeskala, Thormod Kolbrunner Skald, and Hjalte Shegeson. In 1019, Olaf went to Nidaros, where he remained that winter. The following summer, he introduced Christianity in Hologaland, the most northern district of Norway, and Harak of Tjalta and Thora Hund of Bjarki, the most powerful chieftains in those parts, pledged their submission to the king. In Uttrundelagen, Christianity had been maintained since the days of Olaf Tryggvason, but in Intrundelagen, the people had returned to paganism, and the powerful Ulve of Ega continued to officiate as priest in the heathen temple in spite of King Olaf's warning. Olaf, therefore, marched against the Intrunders while they were assembled for the spring sacrifices, captured Ulve, and caused him to be executed. He gave his widow and his estates to Kalv Arneson, whom he made a lendermand. The people of Gudbrunsdal were converted to Christianity in 1021 after some resistance. When the army which they sent against the king was defeated at Bredevangen, south of Sel, a thing was assembled at Huntorp, where the Hersa Dale Gudbrund was baptized and the people accepted Christianity. Dalla Gudbrand built the church at Huntorp, and Olaf left missionaries to instruct the people. The story told in the sagas that the people carried out an idol representing the god Thor, thinking that it would frighten King Olaf, and that Kolbein the Strong, one of Olaf's men, demolished it with a club, is a piece of fiction introduced by Snorra for dramatic effect. It symbolizes the combat of Christianity against heathenism, and King Olaf's war against the idols. It marks the beginning of a whole literature of folktales connected with the name of St. Olaf. In 1023, Olaf also introduced Christianity in the Gulathingslag and in Valdres. 
In many places, as in Viken, in Untradalagen, and in localities on the west coast where churches had been built by Olaf Tryggvason, Christianity had not altogether disappeared, but it had been obscured and corrupted through heathen ideas and customs. It therefore became King Olaf's second great task to give the Church of Norway a permanent organization, and to establish for it a code of church laws according to which it might be governed. With the assistance of Bishop Grimkel and other ecclesiastics, he produced such a code of laws written in the Norwegian language. The Heimskring law says, The church laws he made according to the advice of Bishop Grimkel and other teachers, and devoted all his energy to eradicate heathenism and old customs which he considered contrary to the Christian spirit. He called a general thing in the island of Moster, where people from Viken, Gulathingslag, and Frostathingslag were present. Here, King Olaf and Bishop Grimkel explained the new laws to the people, and they were finally adopted. For the Eidsivathingslag, Olaf made a new code in which the church laws were incorporated. The districts of Viken were also organized into a thinglag, called Borgarthingslag, because the thing met at Borg or Sarpsborg. It received a code of laws to which the church laws were also added. It is not certain, however, that the Borgarthingslag was originally organized by King Olaf. In the Gulathingslag and Frostathingslag, there was one principal church in each filka. In the Borgarthingslag, two, and in the Eidsivathingslag, three. The principal churches had resident priests who received the income from church lands set aside for their maintenance. The final step taken by King Olaf in the organization of the Church of Norway was to place it under the higher ecclesiastical authority of an archbishop. This might have led to a closer affiliation with the Church of England, since Christianity had been brought to Norway from that country, but the political situation proved unfavorable. Knut the Great, who was now King of England, had not relinquished his claim on Norway, and any closer relations between the two countries, even in religious matters, might have contributed to strengthen his hold. King Olaf, therefore, sent Bishop Grimkel to negotiate with Archbishop Unven of Bremen, with the result that the Church of Norway was placed under the supervision of the Archbishop of Bremen. Christianity began henceforth to gain general favor. The old pagan conceptions were not eradicated, however, through the hasty conversion. They gradually assumed Christian forms and continued to live in the religious life as well as in the songs and stories of the people. Christ was substituted for Odin as the divine ruler. The poet Eilif Gudrunson sang about Christ the mighty king of Rome, who sits in the south at the well of Urd and rules over the lands of the mountain kings. King Olaf takes the place of Thor as the red-bearded champion of light, who is ever victorious in his war against trolls and evil spirits. Freya reappears as the Virgin Mary, who rules over the animals of the forest. She is also the midwife and assists at the birth of children. This naive but poetic blending of Christian forms and pagan ideas marks the advent of the intellectual life of the Christian Middle Ages, from which the folk songs and fairy tales have sprung. It became necessary for Olaf also to revise the civil laws, to bring them into closer conformity with Christian principles. The Heimskring law states that, He made the laws according to the counsel of the wisest men. He took away or added as he considered it just. We have already seen that he gave the Eidsivathingslag a new code, and it is probable, though not certain, that he established the Borgerthingslag. The laws of the Gulathingslag and of the Frostathingslag were so thoroughly revised that these old codes were henceforth known as the laws of St. Olaf. The revision of the laws by the king and his learned assistants, who were familiar not only with Christian principles, but also with the laws of the Christian kingdoms of Western Europe, was a legal work of the greatest importance. The laws of St. Olaf were destined to become the foundation of future Norwegian jurisprudence. King Olaf's law-giving represents in itself a centralization of power, 
and a growth of royal authority which carries with it the greatest change in the political institutions of Norway. King Haakon the Good had indeed been a lawgiver, but not to the extent which this function was now exercised by King Olaf. The old laws were regarded as having been by the gods themselves. They were inherited, time-honored custom, the expression of the sense of legal justice of the whole people, who originally had exercised the power of lawmaking. But after the union of Norway and the introduction of Christianity, when the laws had to be revised and brought into harmony with the new conditions, the king gradually assumed this power. And after Olaf Haraldsson's time, the people had little direct influence on legislation. The old lugthings, which had been suited to the old tribal organizations, were conspicuously defective as lawmaking assemblies for the United Kingdom of Norway. They were four in number, not a single assembly for the whole country, and they were provincial, not national in character. They had no power of taxation, and the laws were introduced by the king or in his name. The powers of administration, taxes, and legislation were therefore quite naturally united in the hands of the sovereign. The king, not the log things, became the exponent of the national will, but he was not an absolute monarch. The people still exercised indirectly no small influence on legislation. If they desired a new law or the revision of an old one, they negotiated privately with the king, and when an understanding was reached, the measure was proposed at the log thing in the king's name. If he wished to propose a new law, he negotiated with men of influence to gain the necessary support. In these preliminary negotiations, the people could exercise considerable influence through their spokesmen. To become a law, the new measure had to be proposed at the log thing and accepted by the people. In matters of taxation, the king was also dependent on the will of the people. If new taxes had to be levied, even for special emergencies, a proposal was brought before the various local or filkes things, where the assent of the people had to be secured. The establishment of the Kingdom of Norway based on the theory of a strong national monarchy with centralized legislative and administrative powers necessitated many important changes in the whole system of government. Many new departures of far-reaching importance had been made, especially by Harald Horfagra, and Olaf Haraldsson continued his great predecessor's work of organization. The Herser, or tribal chieftains, who had ruled over larger local districts, were now replaced by Lendermaind, equals men holding lands from the king or officials appointed by the king. The herser had been the leaders of the people, an old aristocracy. The lendermend became the representatives and adherents of the king. The ormend, who in Harald Horfagra's time were men of humble station, appointed as overseers of the royal estates, were now replaced by sisselmend, or royal officials. They collected the taxes in their districts, and arrested and punished criminals in the name of the king. The herd was also reorganized. Three classes are mentioned. Herdmend, Gester, and Huskerlar. The Herdmend, usually sons of Lendermend and other leading men in the country, constituted the king's court. The Gester were sent on difficult and dangerous missions, and executed the police duties exercised by the king throughout the kingdom. The Huskerlar had charge of the work about the royal residence, and furnished the necessaries for the king's household. This class does not seem to have belonged to the herd proper. The king's mirror says, All men who serve the king are called Huskerlar, but honor and power are divided among them according to their ability to serve him, and according as he wishes to grant preferments to each. There are some Huskerlar in the king's herd who receive no salary, neither are they permitted to eat or drink with the rest of the herd. They must do all things about the royal residence which the overseer demands. They seem to have been young men of good family who sought this kind of service as a possible road to promotion and royal favor. At the head of the herd stood the great officials of the king's court, who acted in the capacity of ministers of state. They were called Hertzjarar, leaders of the herd. 
The chief officials were the Stellari, who had charge of the royal equipages, and acted as the king's representative at the thing, the Merkismather, or royal standard-bearer, the Fjehirthar, or treasurer, and the herd-bishop, who was the king's advisor in ecclesiastical affairs. All public offices, from the lowest to the highest, had thus been organized into an articulate system of national administration. During the reign of Eric Jarl and Sven, the powerful chieftains in the colonies had cast off all allegiance to Norway and ruled as independent princes. The task of reuniting these island possessions with the kingdom required, therefore, the most vigilant attention. Through energetic and tactful measures, King Olaf soon succeeded in bringing the Orkney and Shetland Islands back to their old allegiance. The Faroe Islands accepted the king's code of church laws, but so long as the crafty Trondigata lived, no taxes were paid to the king of Norway. King Olaf investigated diligently how Christianity was maintained in Iceland. He persuaded the Icelanders to abolish many heathen customs which were still practiced, but his church laws do not seem to have been established there. He sought to gain the friendship of the Icelandic chieftains, and many of them visited him in Norway. He negotiated with them in regard to the relation between Norway and Iceland, and an agreement was made about 1022 called the Institutions and Laws which King Olaf gave the Icelanders. According to this agreement, the Icelanders should virtually enjoy the rights and privileges of citizens of Norway. They had the same right of Odal as other freeholders, and could inherit property in Norway on the same terms as native citizens. They paid no taxes except the Landere, which was paid for the privilege of trade and intercourse with Norway. In return, the king's men should have the same rights in Iceland as native citizens, and the suits at law should be brought directly to the highest court. In time of war, the Icelanders who happened to be in Norway owed the king military service, and could not leave the country. Two out of every three would then have to join the royal standards. This arrangement lasted till 1262, when Iceland was finally united with Norway. King Olaf rebuilt the city of Nidaros, which Olaf Tryggvason had founded, and restored the royal hall and the St. Clemens Church, which had been erected in Olaf Tryggvason's time. More difficult than any other task in King Olaf's great work of reorganization was that of reducing the recalcitrant aristocracy to proper submission. Many of the great chieftains who reluctantly had pledged the king a nominal allegiance soon manifested a hostile opposition to his plans, but King Olaf nonetheless proceeded with characteristic energy to restrict their power to what he considered reasonable limits. The powerful Harek of Tjotta had to divide his sicil with King Olaf's friend Osmund Grankelson, and Oslak Fitjaskala was made sicilmend in Hordaland in southwestern Norway, where Erling Sjalgson of Sola ruled with almost royal power. The king enforced the laws with strict impartiality, and punished with uncompromising severity even the most powerful offenders. The Heimskringla says, He meted out the same punishment to the powerful and to the small, but the great men of the country regarded this as arrogance, and they were greatly offended when they lost their kinsmen through the king's just decision, even if the case was true. This was the cause of the uprising of the great men against King Olaf, that they could not tolerate his justice. But he would rather surrender his kingdom than his uprightness. Erling Schalkson and others sent their sons to King Canute the Great in England, who received them well, gave them rich presents, and did what he could to encourage the defection of the Norwegian chieftains. King Canute was a powerful monarch who ruled over England, Scotland, Wales, and Denmark. He also called himself King of Norway and claimed even the throne of Sweden. He was tall and stately, with light hair and bright eyes, generous and sociable, a king whom the young nobles loved to serve. So long as Canute was fully occupied with affairs in England, the aristocracy did not venture to rebel openly against King Olaf, but the growing power and influence of King Canute was a steadily growing menace to Norwegian independence. The new king of Sweden, Anud Jakob, 
was a brother of Olaf's queen, Astrid. The two kings made a joint attack on Denmark in an endeavor to seize the country, but King Canute met them with a large fleet, and an undecisive battle was brought by Helgia, near Skåne, after which all thought of conquering Denmark had to be abandoned. Erling Schalkson and Horik of Tjata had thrown off all allegiance to King Olaf, so that he could find no support in northern and western Norway. King Canute, who had made active preparations to invade the country, left England with a fleet of 50 ships in 1028, and a Danish fleet lay ready to join him. When this news reached Norway, the chieftains of Trindelagen assembled the Orething and proclaimed Canute king, and Erling Schalkson hastened to his assistance at the earliest opportunity. But Olaf would still strike a blow for his throne in his country. He left Viken with 13 ships, and met Erling Schalkson's squadron near Utstin in southwestern Norway. A battle was fought which resulted in the defeat and death of Erling. It was now late in the fall, and a great fleet was advancing against him from Trindelagen. All further resistance was useless. He steered his ships into a fjord in Sindmer, took leave of his friends, and through the winter's snow he made his way across the mountains to Sweden. He spent some time in the island of Gothland, where he introduced Christianity. From there he proceeded to Novgorod, and finally to Kiev, where he found refuge at the court of his brother-in-law, Duke Yaroslav of Gardarike. End of chapter 45